2: This
3: is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect,
1: committed to change. Jeremy, how are you? I am dandy. Uh, how are you, Brad? I mean, I can see you've done it here today. <laughs> I'm living the dream and keeping it real, Jeremy. I'm fighting fit and
4: uh, feeling fabulous. Enough about you. <laughs> enough about you. Oh, thanks for asking <laughs> and not waiting for the answer. <laughs> but look, uh, uh, enough about indeed enough about us because we are in, uh, joined by a wonderful guest today, and Justine Barrett is well. She's a superstar. Um, would be the main main. <laughs> job title, Thanks. but she's a research <laughs> technician uh, from the uh, in from CSIRO's Marine Debris Group. And I think actually one of the best things about this podcast is that we get to learn a little bit more about the people behind the title. And obviously, Justine, we've collaborated a little bit. I think we met for the first time in Tasmania where you wowed the masses with a uh, amazing talk uh, at the, I think it was the Urban Water Symposium.
3: Yes. Well, they call every stormwater event a stormtrooper event though.
4: Stormtrooper. Oh, I like that.
3: Stormtrooper events. Yeah.
4: I do like that title. We should
3: all change our titles.
4: If I had a business card, I'd change it immediately. I'm actually keen to delve into some of the science that I know we both love, but we always love to get a backstory. How does this journey all begin, Justine? So first up, where are you calling
3: from? I am in Tasmania, southern Tasmania, about half an hour south of Hobart is where I reside, in a little town called Kettering, which is where you catch the ferry to Bruni Island. That's our claim to fame. Uh, But I grew up and spent most of my life actually in country Victoria, in a little town of only a couple of thousand people. Uh, It's called Murbury North. There you go. Tiny little place. Yeah, Yeah, I'm seventh generation in my family to be born in that town. Really? So I, I broke, broke the mould and I moved to a different state. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of my family, my, the rest of my immediate family is still there.
4: I actually uh, originally born and raised in Bendigo in country Victoria. I must admit I haven't heard of your little town. Nothing against your hometown, uh, but why did you move?
3: <laughs> <laughs> we moved because uh, my husband was starting a degree actually. He started an engineering degree at UTAS as a mature age student with three children. So that's been a bit of a journey. Yeah, I do not recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was six years ago and it's still going.
4: And how did you get involved with plastic pollution and and CSIRO? So you you obviously went along with your husband?
3: Yes. Yeah, yeah, I did. So I've been in the science industry since I was 16, actually. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, right back. The very first science job I had was in a milk factory.
4: Milk factory?
3: Yeah, quality testing on milk.
4: I can make a test pretty quick and easy. It's all terrible.
3: (laughs) Most of us just do the sniff test, don't we? Exactly, we
1: do. What are you testing the milk for? Quality for contamination, pus levels,
3: bacteria levels, bacteria levels, and percentage of fats and things like that. Right. It's all good. Don't worry. Anything bad would get would get taken out straight away.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I love milk. Uh, my mate here doesn't, no. so you know.
4: <laughs> please continue on your uh, anyway,
3: anyway. One of the next towns across from where I grew up, there was a small regional campus of Monash University. I didn't want to do any of the degrees, but I wanted to stay in the area. So um, the one I least uh, loathed was science and that's how I got into into science so it's not some magical you know I grew up following documentaries and and being curious it's not like that at all for me unfortunately I just kind of fell into it and it's grown on me over the years so I've worked in the water quality industry as well I've worked in a power station a coal-fired power station for a couple of years uh, I've worked at a, a university as a, a technician a chemistry technician and I've taught chemistry at uni as well. And then I decided to do a master's, and I did that in Antarctica Marine Science, and that's kind of how I fell into doing work with Denise at CSIRO doing plastics.
4: Because that that, that trip to Antarctica, was that through the the Homeward Bound scholarship or award that you were given?
3: Yeah, yeah. yes. I I was very, very fortunate, and I was a part of the second cohort of Homeward Bound ladies. So it's people, women from all around the world in the STEM field doing a 12-month leadership course that culminates in a three-week trip to Antarctica, which was incredible and intense and just mind-blowing in, in many, many ways.
1: There's not a lot of people that get that opportunity. What's it like? I mean, we've had a few guests on that have been down there, but the, their, their experiences were all different. What, what are your is? What what was it like?
3: It's surreal. Like We left from Argentina, the very right bottom of Argentina, and Ursa. so it's a two-day yeah. crossing, yeah, um, Ushuaia, Ursa. and yes... Yeah, so- we did a couple of days in a, of intense training in a hotel and the, our trip leader one day said, you know, our ship's out the window, have a look down on, in the port and there's all these massive cruise ships and then there's this tiny little ship between all the big ships. <laughs> yeah, that's ours. <laughs> and we kind of went. You, you mean that little tugboat?
2: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs>
3: so our ship was really basic, but um it was a two day crossing, it was relatively smooth actually, and then it was very, very foggy and misty, but you can start um the very first kind of signs of, of life was we could hear penguins. So you could hear little squeaks of penguins and so we knew we were close and yeah, then just very, very where it gradually starts to outline of icebergs, and it's just—it's so surreal. Like gives me goosebumps thinking about it now. Just to be in that situation where you're so remote, and it's—it's it's almost out of this world kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, just—just just phenomenal.
4: And it wasn't just a junket, I'm guessing. It was you were there to do some sort of scientific endeavours, or
3: so we didn't actually do any science research in Antarctica. It was the leadership.
4: Oh, I okay, right. Ah, right. Yeah. There you go. Cool.
3: So we visit, We were down at the peninsula, Antarctic Peninsula, and we visited a lot of the research stations down there from different countries. We were able to get off the ship most days, actually, and just sort of sit with Antarctica. But in between all that, we had lots of lectures around the wildlife down there, the impacts of climate change and ways that we could go about changing that and shifting that. And I'm, I must admit, after three weeks of being down there, I felt like I needed to leave, like we were intruding really? on the most precious place on the planet and we really should get out of there. I felt like us humans just don't belong. We need to leave it alone.
1: Wow. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Having said
3: that, like, you know, what a privilege to go down there in the first place.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, you are privileged. I mean, anyone that, that gets to go down. Absolutely. There, um, certainly on my bucket list to do one day. I mean, it, mm. well, if it's still going to be around by the time
4: I, you know, get my arse down there. Well, just on, on that, so you, you're obviously there talking about climate change, you were saying. Uh, what what aspects of that?
3: We talked a lot about, um, you know, human impacts. That's the part that I found the most challenging, actually. There was one day where we were walking along a pebbled beach that was very obviously very isolated. Everything down there is isolated, and I found rubbish on the beach. I found a balloon, a popped balloon. So we, we talk a lot about that. We spoke a lot about the human impacts, yeah, or the you know, what carbon emissions are doing to warming, the plastic pollution issues globally, but also the understanders of climate change. You know, it's the wealthy countries that are polluting the most, but it's the, the countries that are poorest that are being the most impacted. So, it's really quite depressing being part of these conversations all the time. And then on top of that, seeing it firsthand. Yeah, so,
1: say. Seeing it firsthand must be.
3: Yeah, that's really, um, oh, it kind of hits you like a truck. So, our ship leader a trip leader he's been going down to antarctica for decades and he would say you know see that little island over there that never used to be there that used that iceberg used to come in all the way to you know another kilometer beyond where it is now and while we we're down there there was you know we saw a lot of krill ships and things like that and you know just seeing those impacts and i sort of think you know you know, part of it is you know why do we why do we need to fish for krill why do we have to come to the end of the earth mm. To, to fish for resources, can't us humans leave it alone? Can't we just dial it back a little bit? We're already having so much impact.
1: Yeah, it must be quite emotional. I mean, yeah. I, I just before when you were talking, I was visualising visit, myself walking down a beach, seeing some rubbish. It would fucking destroy me. You'd be like, "Why?" You know, and and then of course you you understand why, and it, it's it's just drawing the dots up, which must be very confronting. You know, it's all very well seen in Yeah, America's it's end. a mess in the yeah. head.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a head. I'm not going to say the word, but it's a head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, it's really, you know, you you feel so small being a human down there, being um, just, you know, a small group of people. You feel really, really tiny because it's such a massive place, huge mountains and you know, towering icebergs. But there's evidence of us little people having so much impact. So. It's, it feels so unbalanced that humans have such an impact on the rest of the planet, and yeah, it really smacks you in the face down there.
1: The irony is that what do we have to go to Antarctica now to do beach cleanups?
3: Yeah, well, yeah. There's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of research in the, in what well, emerging in litter in Antarctica, and not so much on beaches, but there's there's been litter found in sediment around the research stations, things like that. Because previously they used to bury their rubbish down there, or just or sit it in a pile on an iceberg that they knew would melt over summer.
1: Wow!
3: And obviously we have a lot more restrictions now, but, you know, yeah, there's lots of stories around that.
4: And you mentioned how that trip led to some sort of collaboration with Denise Hardesty from CSIRO, who we've had on the podcast previously. So how did that come about?
3: Yeah, we actually had a social homeward bound catch-up in Hobart, and there's not that many of us. And so I met Denise there and told her that I was doing Masters and looking for a project, and she said, come and see me next week. So uh, I ended up doing a project with Denise, analysing deep sea sediment from a couple of hundred kilometres off the coast of South Australia, so from the Great Australian Bight. And I analysed that sediment for microplastics, and of course we found some. Human impact is everywhere, and then we used those figures along with other deep sea sediment microplastic figures to estimate it, to provide a global estimate of how much microplastics are in the ocean floor.
4: Uh, is that how that uh, I think you first came across my radar? I think you wrote a conversation article piece, and it was. And I'll include a yes. link to the show notes. And it's called "Gives the uh, results away," but it's called "We estimate up to 15 million tons of microplastics lie on the seafloor." It's worse than what we thought. Is that yeah. how? That's the article that came out of your research.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's devastating research. And as a scientist, it's it's devastating doing that research because I'd say, look, everybody, here's a problem, but I'm not actually telling you how to fix it. And I find that really frustrating. That's part of the, the problem with all this is it's so big that that we don't know how to deal with it. So most of the work that we do in the marine debris team is actually about providing evidence to a problem and then come out with solutions on how to fix it. So And that's what I'd much prefer. I'd much prefer to say this is the problem, this is how we fix it, rather than just going, yeah, this is the issue, someone else deal with it.
1: Well, if you think about it, and, and just going back to going, these, the, the problem's so big, if you, if you break it down to us humans and our lives, when we've got a lot going on, It's hard to focus. Yeah, I've got I've got this to do. I've got this to do. I've got that. You know, how do you fix those problems? But then you scale it up to the world. No one of these chickens, hit this chickens going around, going, "Hey, what do we do? How do we do it?" And sometimes it does feel overwhelming. Environmental depression. It's like, well, as you said, how do we fix it? But without the research and getting that data out to the world, it's such a vital part.
2: It
3: helps create the picture. It
1: does it? Does, and we need to create that yeah. picture.
3: We all need pictures and stories. Absolutely.
4: Yeah, and to solve a problem, you need to understand it, and with, to understand it, you need data. And just on that, so 14 million tons of microplastic. On the seafloor. That's obviously an enormous figure that just sort of washes over most people. But and I think a lot of people don't actually realize. Uh, I think, am I right in saying the vast majority of plastic in our ocean is at, actually at the seafloor? So, about, I remember a Unomia research figure estimated some 94% of all ocean plastic is on the seafloor. Is that sound about oh, right? I
3: haven't seen that figure. The figure that I've seen is around seventy percent. They're all estimations, but yeah, the majority is on the seafloor.
4: That's really interesting, and because a lot of obviously there's a lot of interest in the ocean cleanup, for example, and focusing on cleaning uh, plastic from the surface of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And it's estimated—correct uh, me if I'm wrong—about one percent of all plastic in our oceans is at the sea level, at the sea surface. So obviously, a cleanup activity like ocean cleanup can only focus on that top. Very small proportion in that Pacific garbage patch. It sort of indicates to me that we're probably focusing on the wrong way to solve this problem. Obviously, you know, it's far more effective to obviously stop it from going into the oceans in the first place than it is to clean it up.
3: I'm really glad you mentioned that.
1: Don't talk to us about it. We're, that's a lead-in sort of thing that you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But yep. It just seems right. Pretty pictures. People need pictures. You know, oh, we're making, we're making such a big impact. We're we're pulling all this stuff in. Great. Petals on the back. It's far easier to do that than to do the dirty work.
3: It does raise awareness. Yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah. yeah. It's, it's visually very difficult to tell a story about plastic on the seafloor because, let's face it, who's down there? But obviously, we need researchers like CSIRO and others to sort of, you know, excuse the pun, bring this issue to the surface.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
4: Just out of interest also, like when plastic goes to the seafloor, I'm not even sure if you can answer this, but does it stay there or does it I've, – I've heard this sort of terminology of oceans burping. Microplastics into the atmosphere—is that a thing?
3: Oh, I haven't heard that. Oh, I don't Right, know. there you go. I'm I'll, <laughs> I'll follow it up after this. <laughs> There's certainly a lot of evidence that suggests that plastic moves around the ocean floor and around the ocean in general through tidal movements um, and on the surface. The solar radiation also degrades it and makes it, turns into smaller pieces. And with that and the wave action breaks it down further. So, you know, one larger piece might become thousands of smaller pieces. What it does on the seafloor, we don't have a whole lot of research around that, around its movements and, and the breakdowns, because like you say, when we're not down there, we can't see it. And it's really expensive to do that kind of research. And so I guess we, we know now that there is a big problem down there, but still very expensive to get down there and what we do in this the marine debris group at CSIRO is focus less on that side of the problem and more on how can we prevent it and you know the big cleanup of the great garbage patch things like that are are wonderful and really raise a lot of awareness and they're they're all doing you know really good things but we feel it's best to try and stop the rubbish and the same as what you guys do try and stop the litter getting into the ocean to begin with and once we've figure that, that out, then we'll go to the ocean and start looking at how to remove what we've already put
1: in there. I think you're going back to Timmy's Silverwood season two, where he was talking about the research of underground plastic tsunamis.
4: Yeah. But also, I mean, you might remember we had a chat with Janice Brani, I think from the University of Utah, which talked about you know microplastics being transferred in the atmosphere over thousands of kilometres and landing in massive quantities in even the most remote areas like American national parks like... Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon, like areas where people basically aren't, but still having really, really high fallouts from the atmosphere of microplastics, which sort of lends to the question is where is it coming from? And it's obviously coming from somewhere else, but where? And there was a theory that she had that was that maybe this some of this microplastics is actually being released from the oceans and into the atmosphere and then being transferred via wind action thousands of kilometers. It's scary to think about, but it's also probably more of a concern how little we actually know about the implications, whether it's from a human health perspective or ecological implications associated with all that plastic on the sea floor. 14 million tons. It's just it's out our this world, but clearly it is still our world.
3: It's too much to comprehend, isn't yeah. it? Kudos to the ocean. If it, if the ocean's burping it out and sending it back to land, well, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty, to paint that picture in your head, it's, it's pretty
1: we we, it? we we roughly know that the vast majority of, of the, the pollution that's in our ocean is coming from land based sources. We know that. And we know that urban areas contribute a hell of a lot and and, um, some of the major rivers up in Asia, can, you know, they contribute a hell of a lot more. One thing that we go around on the show as well, let's just call it 80% of of, of the pollution comes from those land-based sources. So why is not 80% of our attention, 80% of our resources going on stopping (laughs) that? And we, we, Brad and I, get very frustrated because, you know, ocean cleanup, as you say, from an awareness point of view, Fantastic. It's great, but it's a hell of a lot of money getting in there trying to sort of skim the top of the problem without going into it. But people feel great about it. Like makes them feel good. Pete Kalinsky with his um, Seban, which is a rubbish bin that sits within Marina's, fantastic technology to raise awareness. And I know Pete's pivoted a bit and realized that he does know that, you know, he's only scratching on the surface. But, gee, yeah, I tell you what, Discovery Channel, Coca-Cola, everyone's jumped on that and gone, great, we've got a Seven. You know, what's that actually achieving? And, and, and it, it bugs us a little bit. That the focus isn't on the science. The focus is on feel good. I mean, how, how do you, in your day job, how do you handle that, knowing what you know?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating, absolutely. I, I can appreciate your frustration. I think the reason why we, as people, really grab onto those feel good stories is because the problem is so big that it feels out of our control. So those little feel-good stories make us feel a little more like we're in control. Yeah, there is so much to do. And after coming off, so a couple of weeks ago with the International Marine Debris Conference. So much of the focus was around monitoring and so establishing baselines around countries for, and that's a lot of the work that we do, establishing baselines, getting data for the amount of litter around coastal areas that each country is producing. That's a starting point. But I was really surprised at the conference how little Technologies that there was being developed in this area, I was disappointed. Actually,
4: I spent twenty years of uh, environmental consulting, and and you know one of the things that you, you often see written in environmental management plans or environmental impact assessments is this monitoring, you know, proposal. And look, monitoring i wouldn't say it's a waste of time, but it's—it doesn't do anything to solve the problem. And a lot of sort of particularly uh, big infrastructure projects, uh, mining, etc., they'll say they do monitoring. It's basically just watching the world burn. It's just not good enough. We need to act. The technologies to actually stop this, um, pollution, there's no probably new ones because they're already been around. They've, like we've been putting in storm treatment assets, you know, gully pit inserts, gross pollutant traps, fire retention systems for 20 years. These devices, these assets are highly effective at stopping pollution, but we know we're only, we're only the sort of one step up the the waste management hierarchy in front of. Cleanup. We need to essentially just ban single-use plastics. We need to significantly reduce, significantly reduce the production of plastic uh, items, and obviously their careless uh, management. Simple as that. The solutions are ready, to rock and roll.
3: That's the thing. There is solutions out there. It's a costing.
1: We have Ocean Protect. We, we've certainly done the numbers, and it's far cheaper to stop it at source than it is to go out and clean it up. And, and you know, Brad can give you all the examples of the world, and yet. Yeah, no one really listens to us. Well, do you not? Well, they do <laughs> well, Yeah, yeah, you look and our,
3: Yeah, right. We're doing a really big push in the stormwater space at the moment with our research, our plastics research. I think part of the issue is one is trying to put stormwater, put the fact that all that marine pollution is coming from our backyards into the public eye and, you know, trying to make stormwater a little more sexy because it's just out of sight, out of mind.
4: Well, if there's ever been two roosters uh, ready to make Stormwater sexy. Yeah. <laughs> it's Jeremy Brown Esquire and Brad the Big Deal, Dalrymple. So, and here we are. Oh, <laughs> uh, just saying. Should we
3: start with the calendar? No, no, no,
4: don't, don't. He will. He, he, he certainly will. I'm just warming up. I'm just, but look, in, in all seriousness, that is actually how this podcast started. We, Jeremy and myself, fully realised that we need to tell this story better. And it's not just a case of, Attending a boring old stormwater conference, talking to a whole bunch of other boring old stormwater engineers. You got to go. Oh, well, I'm and-
3: attended. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we met, right? <laughs> but that,
4: t- to my point, like that, like that urban water symposium, that, that's actually a fairly rare thing, you know, getting the likes of yourself, Denise, uh, and a whole bunch of other sort of stakeholders in a room together to talk about plastic pollution. You know, pr- traditionally, stormwater engineers had their own conference and we did our own thing. And actually, we never spoke to the likes of CSI. Row. We're you know, battling the problem at once this stage.
1: It's also about our company name. Five years ago, was Stormwater Three Hundred and Sixty. Oh, so do you deal in sewer and sewage? No, it's stormwater, <laughs> well, is it the same thing? So then you, you go through that. And oh, no, we stop pollution going out to the ocean. Oh, you do sewer, so that's along with the podcast. We pivoted the whole company and went, well, hold on, Ocean Protect, because that's that's what we're doing. We've really put the, the, the awareness around it. But have we made the gains that we wanted to? No, we haven't. We've tried to make it as sexy as you can.
3: You only employ the good-looking people.
4: Absolutely. Oh, it's, like, it's like a male moral convention at Ocean Protect half the time, you
1: know? But my point is, even with a bit of sexiness, even with great data to show people, guys, it's it's, it's coming from here. We know it is. Here's all the data. Government, for instance, Justine, do you know that? Well, you probably do by now. It's mostly a legal requirement to put these devices in, but it's not a legal requirement to empty the, the rubbish out of them. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. I think
3: it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it's ridiculous.
3: I don't
1: understand. It's obviously our fault as an industry. And I harp on about it. We we call it maintenance. We're calling it the wrong thing. We're emptying an underground rubbish bin full of hazardous waste. Is it us? And when I say us, our industry...
4: For many ways, we as an industry, we haven't communicated or tell, told our story as effectively as we should. But at the same time, we're battling a fairly apathetic uh, community, if I'm honest. like uh, Plastic pollution wasn't on the public radar up until probably the last 10 or so years. It's obviously got a lot of attention now and people are just getting their head around it. A lot of the imagery is very you know, visual. You can see it and it looks like it's... Being discarded from you know shipping nets, or you see the the commercial fishing nets catching a whole bunch of dolphins and turtles, or whatever. You see the microplastics in the ocean. You think someone's just littering from their boats, but people don't understand the stormwater network is the key contributor. Rain falls that washes our streets and roads clean and urban environments. But that pollution goes somewhere. And as we know, Jeremy, we've sat in very prestigious meetings with environmental individuals, environmentalists, without mentioning your names, and with 35 years plus experience of environmental science, etc., and they didn't even know stormwater went to the creeks and rivers.
1: They thought it went to a wastewater treatment plant. And politicians, state politicians, and their portfolio was the environment, and they thought the sewer and the stormwater were the same
4: thing. Yeah, so we're battling, in part, Previously apathetic community, but also uh, a community that just didn't understand the fundamentals in this short space of time that we've been, uh, charging on this, um, you know, issue. I think we actually have made a big difference. We know, for example, we, we just had Black Town City councils, uh, Daniel Ryder on the show talking about their compliance program, incentivizing and ultimately enforcing the maintenance of stormwater treatment assets. And that'll go across the country in time. And look, I think the more and more of the public in many ways as a direct result of this podcast have actually increased their understanding of the issue and what we can do about it which brings me to my positive story note so what can we do about it you know so obviously justine you mentioned before that you've done a bit of research but your focus your your team's focus is on essentially stopping or helping stop pollution entering our oceans and waterways from land-based sources so how are you guys doing that
3: so within australia we're working with the federal government to develop technology around monitoring how much plastic or pollution goes out through the stormwater system so Australia as a whole is pretty good at not littering. We have you know, behavioural changes over the last few decades means that we're pretty good at picking up after ourselves. But we know we also know research shows that we still have a lot of litter leaving our land land sources and going out into the ocean. So the majority of what's polluting the ocean is coming through stormwater systems. So that's our focus. So we are working with people like you to develop a sensor technology to help us understand how much litter is in gross pollutant traps in stormwater systems so that you will get a little alert to say your stormwater traps are full and you need to go and empty them because like you said, Jeremy, there's no rules around monitoring and emptying gross pollutant traps. So that's part of what we're doing is trying to develop a technology that helps the industry keep on top of their litter traps more effectively.
4: We're collaborating with CSIRO on this initiative. And look, for my mind, it's a revolution. It's a game changer. So. As many would be aware, there's thousands, tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of these gross pollutant traps within Australia in the ground currently. And their job is they're like underground garbage bins, intercepting stormwater and capturing pollution. The key problem is uh, a lot of these assets just having aren't getting that pollution that they are designed to catch. They're not getting that pollution removed, and there's a few challenges to that. You know, it uh, a lot of people don't actually know when they are due for uh, a service or a a pollution removal. To actually inspect a lot of these assets, it's a big process. Sometimes you've got to lift a very large access cover, which often requires heavy machinery or at least some fairly strong individuals. Uh, It is time consuming, costs money, et cetera. But what CSIRO in the process of developing in collaboration with Ocean Protect and others, I'm sure, is a sensor technology, which is very cheap, you know, resilient, has a very, very strong battery life, very small, and we can essentially put it in these gross pollutant traps to determine when these assets do need to be have that pollution removed. For my mind, it's an absolute game changer for our industry.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think it's a game changer too, but let's take that a step further. Okay, the alert goes off, beep, 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 it's full. Go to the private asset owner and say, mate, you've got to do that. No, I don't. Tell me what I have to do. It's not law. I'm not going to do that. Get stuffed. We know when they're full. We we know because we do load tests. We know roughly that if it's in there for a year, and based on the the land use, we roughly know when they're going to fill up. Sure, it does cost us money to do an open inspection, but the problem is, then once you've done it, there's no stick. You know, there's no, I mean, you can have a, an alarm as loud as you want, but there's no stick behind that. There's no enforcement. There's no okay, buddy, it's full. If you don't do that, I mean, apart from Blacktown, one LGA in all of Australia. There's no stick to the developer. If it was a wastewater treatment system and we had a sensor on it, everyone would be like, oh, oh God, there's heaps of shit in there. We're going to go and get it. We're, 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 you know, it's by law we've got to do it. The problem is with the legislation, guys. Or well, that's my opinion. There is no legislation around it. What do you What do you think to that, Justine?
3: So part of this big project we're doing, federal government too, is to actually speak to people in the industry and find out what the issues are. And so uh, hopefully I'll come up with some pretty solid data in the next couple of months with feedback from people like yourselves around how much, uh, how many people within the industry feel like we need legislation towards this. fully agree I think there needs to be a consequence there's no consequence and the other thing is that it, a, a grace pollutant trap when it's full looks the same full now as it will in six months time so you might arrive to it and go oh we caught it just in time but actually it's been out of, out of use for for months others I've spoken to have said that they don't think legislation will ever get off the ground or, or will help in any way so
1: who the hell said that
3: <laughs> I won't say any names but they, they, they think it's not as simple as that uh, it's just legislation, and to some extent, I agree. You know, I think we need we need improvements in, for one, in recognition of what stormwater, you know, the, the fact that we pollute through stormwater. And it seems like a lot of people, as you say, within within higher levels of management in these areas, don't even understand that that's a problem. Um, yeah, improved technology for monitoring, perhaps a little more awareness around the community, understanding that our rates are going towards preventing pollution. Um, yeah, and and the, the consequence through legislation.
4: Look, so if I can just comment on legislation for a sec, will legislation make a difference? No, because it's already illegal to not remove the pollution from these assets. So, under most uh, council development conditions, you have to manage your stormwater treatment assets appropriately, and that's the case whether it's Blacktown City Council, Brisbane City Council, Melbourne City Council. It doesn't matter. If, if you are mandated to put these assets in, generally the council require you to maintain it. Now, currently they don't enforce that and that's the key issue. And I'm going to go through the other re- legislation. So under the, in Victoria, uh there's a clause 56.07.4, which says you have to manage your assets in accordance with the satisfaction of the relevant drainage authority. There's also an environmental duty under the Victorian EPA legislation. Similarly, in Queensland Environmental Protection Act, you have to do it. You've got a general environmental duty and maintaining the stormwater treatment assets and removing that pollution is consistent with that duty, you can't let pollution leak out of any any asset that would cause damage to the environment. Same thing in the New South Wales legislation under the Protection of the Environment Operations Act of 97. I'm just going to read it out. The person must not willfully or negligently cause any substance to leak, spill or otherwise escape in a manner that harms or is likely to harm the environment. And a person who pollutes any waters is guilty of an offence. Now, when you don't remove pollution out of stormwater treatment assets, that's exactly what you do. You allow pollution to leak, spill and otherwise escape. That leakage or spilling over does cause environmental so long story short so the legislation is already in place exists that mandates the appropriate removal of pollution from these assets the key deficiency to Jeremy's point before is no one is enforcing that legislation but look you know you've got to obviously have some sort of means of detecting that pollution that it, that is potentially spilling before you can actually bring the stick in now does this sense of technology make sure that all our assets in the ground are going to be appropriately managed and have that pollution removed. No, but it's a very key part of it. Through this sensor technology, we will readily understand when these assets are due for a, a pollution removal. And then then it's up to the next, uh, the relevant authority to make sure that that pollution is removed.
1: And, and not only that, it's reducing the cost of us doing business. Meaning, you know, so say for instance, we've got one at Randwick City Council, or well, we think it's going to be full in maybe two months' time, so we'll go out, we'll mobilize three people, we'll do a confined space entry, we'll, uh, actually it's not. Well, that's just wasted $5,000, you know, so it's going to make us more efficient. And they, look, Denise and I, you know, that's how this all came about is through our sense of technology and our, our love for it. Don't get me wrong, I'm, you know, we, we certainly need it, but humans are. Bloody lazy. Unless there's a stick going, if you don't do this, there's going to be a consequence. Justine said it before. Then no one's going to change.
3: I'd like to see eventually if we had a sensor like this in all GBTs across Australia, if we mandated that, that there had to be a sensor. And then those alerts going through to the EPA or someone so that they could go, well, this, this council hasn't emptied anything for a certain amount of time.
4: I reckon the notifications should also go to the local environmental groups that otherwise have to do their beach cleanups every weekend, pulling the pollution off the beaches and waterways that would otherwise have been prevented through appropriate management of these assets.
1: Make it public. That's what I was about to say. Absolutely. The other problem with stormwater is... You know, you've heard me say it a thousand times, Brad. It's unique. It crosses political boundaries. It crosses physical boundaries. And in our political, uh, when we're talking political boundaries in Australia, we've got the federal government, we've got state government, we've got local government. Now, local government are the typically the people that are burdened with these assets, um, whether that's from enforcing the private developer to put them in or for them putting their own devices in. Now, local government need help often, and very often under-resourced from a personnel point of view, from a monetary point of view. So they physically don't have the the money to do it. And then it comes to the political pressure. Say, for instance, you know, local government elections are coming up. You know, what do people actually care about? Potholes, buses on time, or Playgrounds, <laughs> because that's what they, you know, or do they care about something that they don't see or, you know, it's underground? Going back to, to I guess, what we're trying to do now, the, the data's coming out, and I've got an interesting article, or interesting, a scary article about uh, a study done here in New Zealand about 70% of the fish in New Zealand have plastic in them. Now, with those tools, people start to go, oh, how did that get there? So we're slowly not drawing, you know, people like CSIRO, you know, all the, the people out there collecting data. We're starting to paint this picture so people can see it. It's just taking too long. And as you guys all know, we're running out of time quick.
4: I actually am keen to talk about some of the other work that you're doing, but I think it is also related, uh, Justine. I mentioned you mentioned in a little chat we had recently that you're doing some work in the for D A W E, which I think is the Australian Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment.
3: They recently changed their name, actually, to DQ Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water. And I, I feel very proud of myself that I got that one out. <laughs> and,
4: Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, <thanks.
3: laughs> That's the, the federal government department that I mentioned before that we're working with. We're doing a really big project with them. That say, so the Australian government have a national plastics plan and so under that they're doing all sorts of things to try and minimise plastic pollution in Australia. So we have a really big project with them where we have four activities. One of them is in the stormwater space, but there's one looking at impacts on endangered species in Australia of plastic and entanglement and ingestion. There's a project looking at establishing a bit more data around how much we're polluting in general. So we've done a lot of work in this space around creating, uh, we call it a baseline, you know, what is it that Australia is producing from land in terms of pollution? Um, And the other activity that we're doing is trying, is working with the the government to create a national online hub or portal that everyone who collects plastic pollution data can send their data to. And so we'll have one-stop shop for looking at data around plastic pollution. And that's the problem at the moment is that a lot of states have their own database. CSIRO we have our own data database as well. And so and then there are a lot of little NGOs that collect data around pollution and don't send their data anywhere. So we're trying to create a national um, hub to put all that information into so that we can compare and see what's happening and we can look at where the the hot spots are also where the cold spots are and look at, you know, for those areas that aren't, don't have a lot of litter pollution, is it because they're remote or is it because that council has really good infrastructure and policy around pollution?
4: Huge, huge project and obviously uh, Ocean Protector involved in that. Without sort of uh, getting too far ahead of the research, I think I know what the answer will be. It will be basically where you've got people and impervious areas, you'll have a lot of pollution.
3: Yeah, it's not just about population. One of the biggest factors is socioeconomic. Yes, status, actually. yeah. Less, less, more so than population. Yeah, yeah which, yeah. you know, I completely understand this. For for people that can, uh, you know, afford to have the headspace around making choices about what they, what they produce, what they consume, and the way they deal with their litter is one thing. But if you haven't got the headspace to even, you know, put food on the table, I can understand why why it's not a priority.
1: We've talked about, you know, intentional littering, and we're talking about human uh, behavioural mechanisms for how litter gets out there. You know, in Australia, we, we don't treat our, our motorways to a very high level. You think about it, whether it's the federal government or the state government, they build a new highway, the water runs off there and then goes down to local creeks and and eventually ends up in the ocean. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but you know, the research out there is around 30% of microplastics in our oceans actually comes from tire wear. I'm not sure if you're aware of that sort of that number. Let's call it a, a hell of a lot. You know, let's call it 25, Yeah, a hell of a, a, hell that, of yeah. a lot. <laughs> and yet in Australia, we don't treat to that level. So have you looked into that? Is there any research? Have you because you you are looking at what's out in the in the receiving environment, you must have come across that. Is that something that you're going to tackle, look into? Because you know, ocean protection. And and people with other people within our industry, we've known it for a hell of a long time. You know, we 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 physically see it um, all the time. And, and I tell you, what's not going to stop is cars. Whether they are electric, whether they are petrol, hydrogen doesn't matter. We're going to still try and put rubber on the ground. What are your thoughts on that, Justin?
3: I think it's a, a really, it raise a really good point. And no, we don't do any work in that area. We have to pick and choose our battles a little bit between what we focus on. And as a group, we're always coming up with new ideas. Oh, we should do this. or we should look into that. And we have to dial it back to say, you know, we're only, we're only a small group. We have to try and um, maximize what we can do within a small group. You're right. It's one of those, I think, when it comes to microplastics that you're referring to from tyres, it's not something visible. And people really find it hard to relate to something that they can't see which has been a huge problem with climate change discussions. So microplastics fall into the same category, I think, is that we can't see the problem. We don't see the plastic coming off our tyres as we drive. And so we, we focus on other things. And even CSIRO, at the broader CSIRO, are focusing on bigger things like, um, like they're working with a, an organisation in WA at the moment to produce a single-use plastic type, thin plastic sort of material from seaweed. So, you know, we pick and choose what we focus to work on. The low-hanging fruit is what we can see and hold in our hand, and unfortunately, tyres just don't come into that category yet.
1: For sure. And, and, and this is more of a, a, a pointing at Brad and I and our industry, when, when the research is pretty solid out there, that we know that a hell of a lot is coming from motorways and from tyres, yet we're not doing one eye over about it. That 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 concerns me. If it was one percent, and uh, you know, we can't afford to do that research. But when the figure's is so high, and and let's face it, Brad, we know that we 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 do have devices that happen to be on some form of road, and when you pop the lids on those, that the the smell is is unbearable. But the black gunk of crap that you can see, and it's all mushed together. It's revolting to even... Oh, right.
3: Like, you, can actually, you can basically oh, see yeah, it. we can
1: see well. wow. but ha- yeah. You know, you can analyse the, the, the crap out of it. And we, we physically see it. So it's not out of sight, you know, from our point of view. And yet we, you know, it's, it's such a big number coming from roads and the fact that we don't treat them. I mean, Aussies love our roads. I mean, there's roads everywhere. Let's go, mate. Let's go from... Buddy, Sydney to Brisbane in seven hours, mate. It's, <laughs> Matt, you know what I mean. And and, and just it, it astonishes me why why someone's not tackling it. Is it the is it the roading companies? Is it the local government going too hard? You know, I, I don't know. Brad, thoughts?
4: Oh, look, you mention it every time. That's well it's about money. So there's a lot of money in building roads, and I think the average road is something like something like a thousand dollars or something crazy per per meter of road. And you know, there's bitumen, there's pipes, there's whatever, but no one really thinks to spend any money on actually protecting the pollution or stopping the pollution which comes from these roads. We know it's yeah, the number one source of microplastics is 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 uh, is roads, Uh, whether it be uh, wear and tear from tires. And the average tire across its life loses about a kilo, and that and we know that microplastic isn't an inert natural rubber. It's a highly uh, synthesised chemical cocktail of fish and marine species killing contaminants. Simple as that.
3: We don't even recycle our tyres yet. We're still producing more and more of this. But we know, yeah.
4: we, know we can solve this problem easily. Uh, so in New Zealand, as we both know, they they make sure that their their key road areas or their major roads have appropriate stormwater treatment assets. But for some reason in Australia and other parts of the world, we just don't require that. But it's an easy thing. We put devices in, whether they be a, a gully basket or a GPT or a bioretention system, wetland, we can massively – as long, long as we just intercept that flow from the road to the waterway through any way we can, we'll stop that microplastic easy easy win but it comes down to money do you
3: have data on that on how much how much you're traps
4: pull out. Oh yeah, for sure. Out. Um yeah, look, uh, yeah, yes, but in terms of microplastics, uh, yeah, I was I was going to comment so whilst we haven't got haven't got collaboration with CSIRO on this issue, we are collaborating with another group called Ozmap, which is the Australian Microassessment uh, Microplastic Assessment Project. Shout out to Michelle. Shout out to Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> um she's a previous podcast guest as was uh, Scott Wilson from Ozmaps as well, but yeah, we're collaborating with them currently to work out or at least quantify how much microplastics is in the devices that we put in in our road environments. And look, whether it's a gazillion microplastics or a, a, a bazillion, um, doesn't really matter. It's, it's a lot. I can tell. That. And, and I know this is something we've talked about before, Michelle, is that when we look inside these gross pollutant traps or galley pit baskets, you, you do see a lot of organics and sediment, and people go, ah, that's, that's not pollution. That's all hunky dory. But we both know that that there's a whole bunch of litter and microplastics in those uh, in that accumulated material as well. I remember you said uh, in passing when we we're in Hobart you said, said for every was it every three or four litres of material in a GPT every were, three every three liters of material.
3: For every three liters of organic material in a gross pollutant trap, there's one liter of of plastic pollution.
4: That's staggering. And
3: again... That's, that's the estimation.
4: Yeah, and that's easy to remove, easy to pull out and stop from flowing downstream.
3: That's it. I think, you know, if you think about all of the assets that aren't in place around Australia, all the rivulets and rivers and, you know, stormwater runoff that just goes straight out into the ocean with no traps at all. Um, yeah, what are we doing to our oceans?
4: What are we? But look, you've obviously been in this space for a while. You've been plastic. You're sciencing the hell out of this issue. <laughs> Yeah. Are you optimistic about the plight of our oceans oh, and waterways? That's a
3: really hard question. It depends on the day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is today? Environment depression is a real thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, you, sometimes you have to, you know, sometimes I get bogged down in it and think, oh, man, it's just it doesn't matter how much work we do, we're not making much of a difference. And then other times, you know, someone will pat me on the shoulder that's just met me when I tell them what I do and they say, thanks for doing that. You know, I'm really glad that there are people out there doing that. And then you walk away thinking, yeah, we're making a difference. This is all going to work out fine. So, you know, I think the frustrating part is that we know how to make improvements and Australia as a nation, we've we've got the intelligence to do this. And I think the majority of the people out there are genuinely, if they had a choice whether to pollute or not, they would say not. I think we complicate everything. We see our society just seems to complicate everything. And especially when it comes to the environment, it's like you say, it's... There are no boundaries around environmental issues. If there was a, if we could blame a particular location or a particular company, then we'd be hard on it, wouldn't we? But it's a shared issue, and collectively, we're not very good at dealing with shared issues.
1: When COVID first hit, Brad and I were, were doing a lot of work trying to convince government that that, that obviously stormwater is an issue and so forth. And Brad uh, crunched the numbers, and we came up with this pretty good plan called zero litter to ocean. And it was in a time where we thought. You know the world's going to literally implode. Everyone's going to be out of a job, and you, you know the world is still imploding. And people said, "But you know, people are finding a We job. just got
3: used to the yeah, implosion. Yeah, we, totally.
1: we, we, we we ran some numbers, and we came up with a pretty good argument to employ thousands of Australians to go out and clean these devices. So we made a. Case, a positive case for simulating the economy, employing people and stopping a shitload of pollution going out to our ocean. You know, so it's, it's almost like a, a we're almost making money here, guys. And geez, we had a lot of support where well, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 organizations around Australia got on board. But even then, it sort of, it sort of just dwindled away. So even when we say, hey, guys, this is going to save money, it's going to save the environment, you know, we're ticking all the boxes here you know it still doesn't get there and that that is a frustrating thing for me like when it comes back to the numbers we know and and, and i'm not a scientist and i pretend to pretend to be but we know hand on heart that if we stop it here it's going to be far cheaper than stopping it out there it's going to be far more effective uh, for the environment we know that yet it falls on deaf ears and you know we've got what another nine years to go until the uh, the the planet you know explodes. What are we going to actually do about it? It's um it's why we have people like you on the on the show.
3: You make a good point that it's cheaper to stop it now before it gets out into the ocean, but it's cheaper to do nothing.
1: Yeah, there you go.
3: Yeah, no. <laughs> and that's the that problem. is the cheapest option yeah. is to do
1: nothing. You're yeah.
3: right. Yeah, but you know you know what's the cost? What's the actual cost though of, of not doing anything? Well,
4: this is the thing: the costs of inaction are exorbitant, and they're actually on. Un- we can't do the sums because um, if we, we know, you know, Jeremy's point, you know, 70% of fish off the coast of New Zealand are full of plastic. What's it going to be like in 10, 20 years' time if we don't do anything? You know, a third of the world's That's protein. It, and it's
3: set to double by 2040, yes. Exactly. And a know, third It's of, just increasing and increasing, even though we know what we're doing. Yeah. It's wrong.
4: It's crazy. And, like, you, a third of the world's protein comes from uh, marine species. And so what are the implications for food security, human health, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The consequences of, of inaction are enormous. But having said that, we're getting this golden opportunity to actually do something about it.
3: Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
4: And to the point around, and the quote I like to use around optimism is to just to, now more than ever, we need to be stubbornly optimistic. And I always use the story of Siddhartha Gautama, the guy who uh, was previously known as Buddha. Two and a half thousand years ago, he said, a bright mind might be the ultimate goal of meditation, but it's also the first step. Without it, you cannot proceed. You cannot move forward. And obviously, we need the brightest of minds to actually solve the plastic pollution crisis impacting our oceans. Or at least the most
3: optimistic, hey? Absolutely. And we do need to be optimistic. We do need to be yeah, stubborn. optimistic. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. we'd all just sit in a ball and cry. Yeah,
4: exactly. And we're obviously not going to do that. We're going to sit back. It's Friday. We're going to hit the weekend and, you know, go out charging yeah. and then it'll be, it'll, and look, but ultimately, we do need to take this issue seriously and actually act accordingly. And and, it, and it's not just a, a a problem that we can handle to government technology or just someone else. It's an everyone everywhere mission. Uh, and we all need to work collectively and effectively to help uh, solve this problem. And, and from my perspective, I'm, Personally, so proud that you know Ocean Protect, Jeremy and myself in particular have worked so closely in collaboration with CSIRO. Recognising you guys are essentially the the primo prestigious science organisation in Australia.
1: You know, funded by the federal yeah, government, and that but, you know yeah. you guys were the the, the big dogs um, <laughs> completely. Like, well, you are. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's like a day, and, and, and I remember when we started off um, trying to like get in touch with you guys. We were like. No one's going to believe us, but they'll believe them. Yeah. And that's how we, we started. To, well, they well, no one does, but if CSIRO comes out and says something, it gets a headline. It
3: does hold some weight, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah.
1: It, it does. Yeah, it does. So you guys better get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> I,
3: I think what, what you guys are doing is so unique as well, though, to have an organization that sits within industry and, you know, your role is to provide a service. In the community to make a profit and to be able to continue as an organisation, but to do that with environmental values is really unique. And so that's why we really we're really thrilled to be working with you because you have such a unique view in business. And I, and I wish that there were more like you across all areas of business. But you know, even the, even the slogan on the back of your truck I saw when I went to um, Sydney last week to to meet Ocean Protect. I took a photo. I can't remember what it was. You know what it is? The slogan on the back of your truck. Yeah. Yeah.
4: If we kill the oceans, we kill ourselves.
3: No, it wasn't Oh, that. stopping
4: pollution entering waterways? No,
1: it's to do with grandchildren. Yeah. We don't inherit the earth from. From our parents, we borrow it from our uh, grandchildren. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. my line, I should it's know. It's great. We buy, yeah. yeah, we don't inherit it from our yeah. parents, we're borrowing it from our grandchildren. Yeah, I, I love it. So you saw it, it's only a small one.
3: The fact that you have that on your trucks, you know, it, it shows the, the reason why you're in this game. And it's very
4: unique I always say I've got the weirdest job in the world in that we are a for-profit company uh, but we are so active as Jeremy and myself in particular like and
1: all all Ocean absolutely so anyone's you know we're, we're just the kooks that jump on the, the podcast you know we've got 50 plus staff. <laughs> mm. Running around doing their various jobs, and all of them are very, very passionate about what we do, and that's that is what makes us unique. We're a four. I wish
3: it wasn't so. I wish it wasn't unique. <laughs> yeah, it and, and, and I gotta tell
4: you, that's how so this known. started as well. Like, uh, like mm-hmm. in terms of whether it be podcasting or going around giving talks uh, and advocating for zero litter to ocean, which Jeremy referred to the policy paper before. If you want to learn out more, learn more about it, just go to zero litter ocean. com. You talk about creating jobs. We create about seven and a half thousand jobs, stop about six hundred really bins of plastic going into oceans every day. Day. I think it's a pretty, pretty simple uh, thing to do. In the absence of anyone else talking about this issue around the importance of stormwater and how it impacts on our oceans and waterways, we've just done it ourselves. And hopefully in time there'll be a thousand other groups just like us doing the same.
3: Oh, wouldn't that be good? I would love to not have a job anymore because yeah, well, there's, be there's like no that. issue. I was, <laughs> I was about to say,
1: that. No we, 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 we would love to, to be out of business because if we were out of business, that means we, there wouldn't be a problem anymore
4: speaking of jobs uh, you do have a job to do Justine and we better let you get back to it but f- <laughs> yeah. from the bottom of my heart <laughs> thank you but look not see as but look thank you thank you so much for coming on our sh- uh, little podcast today it's so good to talk to you and also thank you so much and your team for the m- amazing work that you guys do just keep it up
3: no, right back at you. Thank you for having me and thank you for, the, for all the good work you do. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.